Hi, I'm Dr. John Lakey. And I'm Dr. Payman Danielport. We're board-certified plastic surgeons and hosts of the podcast Forever Young. Join us every Tuesday as we share the latest products and procedures in the never-ending quest to help our patients look and feel their very best. The world of cosmetic surgery is constantly improving. Join us on the cutting edge. Forever Young is available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, foreplay partners. It's my honor today to introduce somebody who is a global leader in couples therapy. He's got a brilliant mind, and he's a man of courage. Foreplay, meet George Fowler. Awesome to be here, Laurie. Great to be part of this show. Hey, you're listening to Foreplay Radio for Couples and Sex Therapy with your host, myself, Laurie Watson, sex therapist, and George Fowler, expert couples therapist. George and I are counselors, educators, authors, researchers, contributors, and leaders in our field with a collective 50 years of experience working with couples and sex therapy. We're grounded in the best and most scientific research from attachment theory with our emphasis on emotionally focused therapy. Using all we've learned from our clients, our work, and our own lives, we want to have this open, frank, and informative conversation about love and sex to help you and your partner keep it hot. So how you doing? I'm doing awesome. So George, I have known actually of his career and his work for about year, year and a half, and followed you on some of your videos, and have had the pleasure of also being one of his students, and George has graciously volunteered to be my new podcast host. He's a husband, a father, and he's co-authored actually many works But three of his books are Sacred Stress, True Connection, and Emotionally Focused Family Therapy. He is also a certified trainer and supervisor and therapist in EFT, and that's Emotionally Focused Therapy. And some of you have been listening to us talk about that. It's kind of the new uh, thought that I'm listening to and trying to learn. He's the founder of the New York Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy, where he's the president He's also a licensed marriage family therapist and supervisor. He practices in Connecticut and New York, and he directs training at the Greenwich Center for Hope and Renewal. And um, I got to say, I have been incredibly impressed by what you've taught. I've now sat through your classes, I think, 24 hours of watching you um, talk with nearly no notes. It's very impressive and have learned so much already from you. So I'm really honored to have you join me and so excited about what we're about to do in terms of helping people both sexually and emotionally get on the same page. Uh, I think that we have a lot together to learn from each other, especially about kind of blending our theory so that we can also potentially help therapists as well. I know that we, you are bringing the EFT family hopefully today, to listen to us. That's exciting. All right. Well, the feelings are mutual, Laurie, and it's a, it's a privilege to be here. It's, it's, it's funny to listen to someone else read out a resume of things I've done, and yet you know, I can't get my kids to listen to me or you know, fight with my <laughs> wife as much as anybody else, and we really truly are in this mess together. That's why it's so refreshing to have a, a forum where we could just normalize a lot of these struggles that we all have and, and find some ways of just strengthening and the bonds that we're all looking to protect. Yeah, I agree. So George, I I want you to tell people like the story about how you got into couples therapy and 
how you started this whole thing, where you come from. I, I want to know your whole story. Well, how many days we have here? We have lots. All right. We have 52 days this year. All right. Well, let's start with the Reader's Digest version. I mean, I grew up in College Point, Queens, which is a pretty tough blue-collar neighborhood. And we are actually in New York right now. We are in New York. We're in White Plains, a little further north of New York City. But where I grew up, they said the only way out of College Point was PD, police department, FD, fire department, or OD, overdose. So unfortunately, too many people I saw went that last road of overdose and it's something I didn't want. Mm -hmm. Most of, I never grew up thinking I'd be a therapist. There were no therapists in my town. Most of the marriages that I saw were ending in divorce and the ones that stayed together probably should have been divorced. I mean, it was a real (laughs) train wreck. I always thought, you know what? I'm never going to get married. It's, I can just do my own thing and make my own decision. It sounded like a pretty easy life to me. Uh And uh, like most of us, I really didn't understand what love was or what people are looking for. I didn't have great role models. I didn't have people talking to me about it. And then I met my future wife and all of a sudden I did this crazy thing and decided to get married. (laughs) And I'll never forget coming into the firehouse at the time. Every other firefighter in my firehouse was married but me, and I came in to the kitchen table, and there's like 12 firefighters there, and I said, hey, guess what, guys? I'm getting married. You know, expecting them to be all excited. They were like, don't do it. What are you, crazy? And all this kind of (laughs) – it's – so I guess I've always been interested in what makes relationships work. I remember being a police officer at 21 years old and – So wait, 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 wait. You're a police officer. This was after college? Right, right after college at at 21 – just turning 22, I joined the police department, okay. and then I, I spent three years on the police department, and I transferred over to the fire department and did another 18 years in the fire department. Wow, 18 years. I didn't know you were there. And then eventually you were a lieutenant there, right? Yes. Uh-huh, so you worked your way up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're in the fire department. And I was... When, when did you meet your wife? At what point were you I met my wife or? when I just joined the fire department, so okay. at 24 years old, 25 years old. Okay. So, but I remember being a, a new police officer and responding to family disputes. And I was working in the South Bronx, and people Rough. were screaming and yelling at each other. And I tried to get them to be reasonable and to listen, to communicate better. It just nothing I said worked, right? It's <laughs> people get emotional and they start kind of getting things start flaring, and the parts of their brain now, as I've gotten a lot of the research behind, you start recognizing people are set up to fail. They're not really kind of given the skills they need to have successful conversations. And then they blame themselves when the conversations aren't going so well. That's right. We, I mean, we don't come from families often that are functional and teach us about intimacy and how to talk to each other. Right. And yet, despite that, you know, you look around, everybody's trying to figure it out and make it work. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when my first son was born, I you know, they handed him off, said, all right, you can leave and go home. I was like, can't we stay one more day in the hospital? I mean, there's no manual with this. What are we supposed to be doing? What are they thinking when they send us all home with those babies? It's I don't know. crazy. So for three years working in the police department, it was a great learning experience, you know, really kind of seeing the best and worst in humanity. Um, but it was a pretty stressful job, and you're constantly seeing people – at their worst. So I eventually transferred over at 25 years old to the fire department. And, you know, so much what I learned about in families and couples and relationships, I really learned in a firehouse because in a firehouse, it's, it's so based on, on trust and, and, you know, becoming part of something bigger than yourself. 
It's like a family, right? It's I a mean, big family. Like a, you're depending on each other for your life, so exactly huge, huge bond. And I, because I was interested in in helping people in, in psychology, I, I decided to go back to graduate school in the fire department. And I figured, hey, I'd have a nice career once I retired in 20 years and I could do something else. I like self-help books. I like understanding why people do what they do. I never thought I'd work with firefighters because they don't talk about their feelings. It's, that's, that's true. I mean, firefighters, officers, police officers, they're tough to get into treatment and they need it because right. they have so much trauma and stuff that they're dealing with. And military, I do a lot of work with the military today, and, and you really want to appreciate the good reasons why they are reluctant to do vulnerability. Mm-hmm. There's a nice saying in every firehouse that says, whatever you see here stays here. Mm-hmm. You want to protect your relationships and your families from all the kind of bad things that you're seeing sometimes. And exactly. You know, I, I do research on cancer, and uh, they call it emotional buffering. Basically, you're protecting the people that you love from your innermost concerns and worries and feelings. It's a protective mechanism, but it's also the single most issue that prevents couples from getting on the same page. Uh, When one person protects the other one from their inner world, the couple can't get on the same page and tackle things together. So I imagine as an ethic, the fire department having that like on the door. I mean, I understand that the desire is to protect your loved ones, but wow. A difficult thing for marriages. Exactly. And it, for me, it's not an either-or scenario. It's, it's about flexibility. You do need to protect your, your family from some of what you see, but you can't totally shut them out. And it's about finding that healthy balance of, of engagement. Mm-hmm. So in, in my firehouse, my plan was to keep it a secret. And I was going back to school to study psychology. And like any family, I knew the secret was out when I came into the office one day to change. I went up to my locker and they had spray painted my locker with flowers. And from that moment on, my nickname was Cupid. Oh, good. You know, Dr. Love. They had a few of them, which was pretty funny. But it wasn't actually that funny for me. You can't let them show that it's bothering you. But in the inside, I was like, oh, this is not good. And we'd go to a fire and I hear over the radio, Cupid, Cupid, break that door down. Cupid, break the door down. And I was like, and the worst part was coming out afterwards in a fire because at a fire, you'd have so many firefighters from all over the city that would show up to help out. And then, you know, everybody would be lined up saying, who's this Cupid guy? We want to know who this Cupid guy. It was so, so embarrassing. Really macho. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that was at least, you know, I got somewhat comfortable and I, I thought that's, it was Going in the right direction, and I could separate this psychology passion of mine with the firefighting. And then September 11th happened, and you know, certainly the world turned upside down. The New York City Fire Department lost 343 firefighters, which, you know, to date is the largest loss of. Yeah, painful. Even just saying that, you could just feel all that you know emotion start coming up for me. But I was assigned to Ground Zero. So I spent days down at the site doing search and rescue. And So tell me, I mean, we all have our story about 9-11 and what we thought, you know, I know I thought it was the end of the world, literally. Right. And how did you hear about it? What do you mean you were assigned? Well, I was at home and my son was, my first son was only a couple months old and we were just kind of figuring out how to do this parenting thing. And we got the phone. I got a phone call saying, hey, turn on the TV. I turned on the TV, and then I got a phone call 
all firefighters were reported a call to report back to their firehouses. Oh so my gosh. I can still remember the scene now of just needing to drive away my wife crying with my baby crying and they're sitting on the lawn and I'm like, you know what? We we have to go in. We had no idea what we were heading into, but you're heading into hell. Yeah. So uh-huh. and your wife letting go. I think that's that's so painful when I think about what you know her letting go. Uh, also painful. It's uh you know I give her a lot of credit. Just she had to be as strong as I had to be. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. I was distracted. I had ignition. There was a lot going on that took my energy. She had to sit in a I think a more harder position of being helpless and just sitting and watching TV, not knowing what's going to happen. So I got into my firehouse in Harlem and. You know, we actually commandeered a bus and took off all the seats and loaded up with tools and drove down to to the site, to Ground Zero. And, mm. you know, that was like a scene I've never seen before. It was just, uh, we got there after the right after the second tower collapsed. And oh my God. it was like being on a different planet with all the twisted steel and smoke and dust. And it was, you couldn't believe that that was New York City. I mean, we're used to some kind of controlled chaos out of fire, but that was just like... Really, really surreal. Yeah, just I can imagine how how awful, how terrifying, just a nightmare. I mean, we were you know watching from a very safe distance, and it was nightmarish just to watch. I, I remember the second tower going down, and my honestly, my first thought was, "Oh my God, all the firefighters!" You know. So so how do you survive that? You know, mentally, and then how do you come out of that to help people? Well, that's where your training comes into play. I mean, this ability to turn off your feelings and focus on a mission and be part of a team uh, really kicked in. And we'd be spending our days. The hardest part was just not knowing all the long list of friends and coworkers that you knew and who's missing and not and family. So, I mean, it was was a bit of a, a total disaster. But if you would have told me you know, 20, almost 18 years later that, you know, where I would be was so influenced by that day and, and you know, the decisions I made shortly afterwards. And so I was involved in doing, working at Ground Zero, but then on my days off, I was doing what they call critical incident stress debriefings, which is basically you, you're going to, to firehouses that lost 16 firefighters, 12 firefighters, and you're really just trying to help in any way you can. And it's pretty, because I had just finished my degree in marriage and family therapy, I didn't think I'd ever work with firefighters, but they needed help. So I was volunteering just to do whatever psychological first aid I could in these group settings. And what we'd expect to see after any disaster, an increase in alcoholism, acting out behaviors, violence, post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression. But we also saw increased marital stress, relationship stress. And what was really fascinating was there were so many therapists volunteering their time to see the individual firefighters, but there were hardly any therapists volunteering to see the couples. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in a room of about 100 therapists, and the director was trying to figure out who wants to see the firefighters with addictions, and 60 hands went up, and who wants to see firefighters with post-traumatic stress, 75 hands went up, and who wants to see the couples, and no hands went up. <laughs> You know, so I was like, holy cow, nobody's stepping up to see, 
these firefighters. I don't want to see these firefighters, but I'd have to be better than nobody at all. So that was really mm. my moment of truth. I didn't think I would ever be put in that position, but nobody was willing to do it in the room I was in. So I kind of put this finger up in the back saying, eh, you know, maybe I'll see him. And somehow that director saw my finger. They were like, great, George, you'll see the couples. You got them. You're it. You're it. So on my days off, I was seeing 10 couples. And oh they were gosh. screaming and yelling and not listening, crying and pleading. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm. Talking about a baptism by fire, that's that's what that felt like for that's me. That's it. That's it. Oh, I'm sure. Because they're, they're all escalated. They're all hurting. You're all, they're all in PTSD, both the men and the women, I'm sure. Exactly. So that's, that's something. Let's take a break. We'll come right back and talk more with George about how he got through this and how he became a marriage family specialist. So we want to remind all of you that we are thankful for the way you've shared the podcast. We continue to grow. It is our greatest honor when you share with a friend the work that we're doing in trying to help people reframe their sexual life in a way that is understandable and not so mysterious so that they can make positive changes and strengthen their marriages and their partnerships. Hey, I want to let you guys know all about George. He's written and contributed to several books, and I'd especially like to draw your attention to his book, Sacred Stress, a radically different approach to using life's challenges for positive change. His book is about a mission on how you adopt new strategies and turn stresses into a positive force in your life. And who among us doesn't live with a lot of stress these days? We'll keep you posted as to all he's doing. But George and other EFT therapists all around the country and the world hold couples retreats called Hold Me Tight, which is developed by Sue Johnson, and it helps secure your own relationship. If you'd like therapy with George, find him at georgefowler.com. So now you're the, the guy, you're doing these debriefs with the couples, and how did you, you know, what was the next step? How did you learn how to do this? You're a newbie therapist, basically. Absolutely newbie clueless is what I felt like. I really wanted to sure. quit, but there was nobody, us, yeah. nobody else willing to step up and to kind of jump up. So I decided, I reached out to Sue Johnson. I remember reading an article in my graduate program about emotionally focused therapy. And I said, hey, listen, they seem to have a way of organizing this drama. I need some help. So I shot her an email saying, hey, can you help me out? And she responded back saying, certainly I'll send you some tapes and some books, but better yet, I'll fly out and train you and your staff. That's amazing. So that, That's a huge gift. Yeah. Did, did she just realize that, you know, you were the guy that was helping the couples, the firefighters, and she said, okay, I'm going to have mercy on you and come You help. know, as, as, as terrible as 9-11 was, I've never experienced in my lifetime where people felt more together than that time mm -hmm. you know i remember driving down there going to ground zero and you'd have thousands of people cheering it didn't matter color sexual orientation religion people were just you know pushing together being mm -hmm. part of something bigger than themselves and okay. that, that, that was my cry well, it, it makes me too because it was just so touching i can get goosebumps just recognizing yeah. it wasn't big egos it wasn't it, people really just just wanted to help 
It was in that spirit that even those first couple of months as a new therapist, I had Sue Johnson fly out, Harvel Hendricks, John Gottman. I got yeah. all this exposure to the masters. And I, I thought this is how all new therapists begin, right? <laughs> it wasn't big eagles. People were just trying to kind of give different vantage points of the truth. And it, it really has informed how I've trained since that moment on, that yeah. there's lots of different ways of seeing things. And it's really just, it's just fantastic to be able to have conversations instead of just surrounding yourself with people who agree with what you say. And, you know, there's not really any conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's so generous. And I I know that you've done a lot of generous training as well. I mean, that's, that's incredible. So what did you learn? What did, how did you help these people? You just learned to go into it. I think a lot of what I learned too was, was trying to apply this in my own relationship because mm. me and my wife were following the rules. She was trying to give me space to help out and she was kind of suffering in silence and I wanted to protect her and I was kind of had all my own threats and insecurities and you know, our own relationships, even though we were loving each other and protecting each other, was growing further and further apart. Right. So EFT was really a way of me and her saying, wait a second, these rules don't work so well. Mm-hmm. That we have to find a different way mm-hmm. to kind of be present with each other. Our, our instinct is not necessarily what's drawing us closer. We, we think we're doing something good for each other and we can mess it up. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I really think that was the pivotal lesson I learned that we weren't made to face fear and insecurity alone. I don't crawl into a fire alone. Knowing people are there makes all the difference. So why would our relationships be any different? You know, why, how could protecting my wife from my deepest, most fearful, vulnerable places actually be protecting her and Mm -hmm. vice versa? So it's counterintuitive, but the lesson I learned was actually to head towards the vulnerability, Mm -hmm. which my whole life I've been trained to kind of go away and shut it down and suppress it. And there are times when I'm still going to need to do that. But, you know, again, it goes back to that flexibility. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, right. All the training as a boy, as a man is about guarding yourself and protecting, getting the job done, right? Yeah, I saw this study that baby boys on average smile over 350 times a day. Old men, how many times a day? I don't know. Less than three. Ah. So again, look at what all this emotional constriction does habitually Mm -hmm. over time to so many of us. It's, Mm -hmm. It's pretty sad. So I'm so glad that I learned at an early age that I didn't want that to be my destiny. Mm-hmm. I didn't want the price of my protection to be the numbness of my own heart. Mm-hmm. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And, and I think that's a lot of why I'm grateful that you've joined me, because I really feel like as I've listened to you, you know, you bring this perspective that is so freeing to men, how to be manly and open and vulnerable. I mean, I think you know, what you bring is going to be very powerful for us. Talk about, like, what did you learn from Sue Johnson? And tell tell people who Sue Johnson is. We've talked about her before, but you know Sue, so. Sue is a character. I mean, you could Google and get all the professional resume, but just as a person, she's got a huge heart and she's got a brilliant mind and she has a passion 
very similar to mine. She grew up in, in England in an environment that people struggled in their relationships and she didn't know why and she just got curious and started trying to pay attention. So what I loved about her work is how she, she came up with this model is just videotaping her couple's fight and make up and just notice like these common themes that it's like so often couples get stuck in these patterns of trying to protect themselves and yet that protection comes at such a heavy cost of creating more and more distance in their relationship. So the only difference between the best couples on the planet and the couples who don't make it is one thing, this ability to repair, this ability to notice distance and be able to bridge it. To be able to get back on track. Exactly. Because we're all going to mess up, you know, right? I still fight with my husband and, but it's getting back on track. And, And I think doing that faster is kind of my own measure of success. The goal isn't perfection, it's just being good enough. So having her at that critical time really helped me not get lost in all the trauma and all the noise and all the chaos to start saying, hey, listen, every one of these couples has a choice. Are they going to head towards each other with the stuff that's on their plate that they're dealing with? Are they going to protect themselves and grow further apart? So the simplicity of the model really resonated because there was too much going on in my own life and around the couples I was working with. And before you know it, I started to see progress and transformation in places that, you know, there was a lot of bleakness. And people around me started noticing, like, what is going on in George's office that there's such breakthroughs happening? And, you know, it really set me on this trajectory where today I get a chance to travel all over the world and I'm in different languages with translators and I kind of have to laugh, like, how does this blue-collar boy from Queens who didn't do emotions is somehow in Russia or Israel <laughs> or Brazil or a different place just trying to talk about feelings and vulnerability? It's, uh-huh. it's quite remarkable. And, and I think what's, what's true is that this, this transcends language. And culture, right? The need that we have to be deeply connected to another person is beyond that. And you're tapping into it and helping people get connected. That's what's so cool about what you're doing. Precisely. And certainly we want to respect the differences of culture and how that informs how we see the world. But, you know, there's more that unites us and we have in common than what separates us. So when you start saying, hey, in this culture, they don't do vulnerability, they don't express their feelings or they can't touch yet before you know it, they're having a very similar conversation as me and my wife and they just want to be seen and loved and and cherished and be that special person. And, you know, when you start seeing people head towards each other and feel a confident yes to that answer, their lives become much safer. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, we're going to head toward this conversation And we're going to talk about sex and relationships and why do this? Why do you want to talk about sex too? What's important about that to your work and how are we going to help people with this? Well, since the last 18 years, I really feel like I've gone so deep in helping couples understand what really is going on in their relationship and how to folk not get lost in the symptoms and the content and sex, money, kids, all the things we fight about, really look at the state of their emotional bond and really help couples strengthen that. And yet, for some couples, even when you strengthen the emotional bond, the sex doesn't always come back online, that there's, there's more going on. And as a couple therapist, we don't get that much training on how to focus on sex 
every so often it's to present an issue and then we'll spend a little bit of time on it. But for the most part, there's so many things that couples are talking about that we don't give it the space that I really think is, is so important. And I think culturally we live in a society that avoids having this conversation. I mean, I know I grew up, I didn't want to even think my parents had sex. They had eight kids, so obviously something was going on. Eight times. Eight times. They got lucky, I guess. But really, so my passion is similar to what I have been doing around vulnerability and just getting people to want to face and talk about things that are a little bit difficult, but the opportunities that we find in heading towards those conversations. I'm so excited about doing the same thing around sexuality, that it's the doorway into the deepest intimacy and vulnerability if we're willing to just have these difficult conversations. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Day one. It's exciting. You're listening to Foreplay Radio, Couples and Sex Therapy. Keep it hot. Hi, Foreplay fam. The biggest support you can give us is sharing our podcast with a friend. You can find us also on socials, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we'd love your questions and feedback and really do use these to guide our show. We'd also love it if you'd rate and review us. If you're interested in learning more about us and our mission, look us up on our hot new website, foreplayradiosextherapy.com. Call in your questions to the Foreplay Question voicemail. Dial 833-MY-4PLAY. That's 833, the number 4, PLAY. And we'll use the questions for our mailbag episodes. All content is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for therapy by a licensed clinician or as medical advice from a doctor. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.